Um, well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Jay, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. Uh, welcome to our, our family gathering, as, uh, as others have already said. And um, it's exciting for, for me to be here and uh, to get to teach this morning. I've been doing a little bit of less, less of that um, throughout this series. What's going on with this? Here we go. Hopefully that's not around. We'll see. Um, I've been doing a little bit less teaching as, uh, as we've given the others uh, within our, our body the opportunity to develop a little bit in their teaching uh, and to, to be used by God to kind of help us to grow in our ability to listen to the Spirit and uh, to follow after Him. And uh, so I, I'm, I get more excited now for the opportunities that I do have uh, to get up here and to, to share God's Word. We have been uh, in a series that we've been calling uh, Same Spirit. And the concept behind the series is that we've been looking at uh, Jesus and his life through the, the lens of the Gospels. And we've been trying to see how he demonstrates what it looks like to be a person, to be a man who is filled with and led by the Spirit of God. And if you, you know anything about Jesus, if you've read the New Testament, okay, let's try that. Um, if you know anything looking at Jesus, he, he was a man who was filled with the Spirit. In fact, um, one of the things that, it's, that uh, Paul says about Jesus is that uh, even though he was God in the flesh, he was God among us, he was Emmanuel, he chose not to use his God nature for his own advantage. Literally, he emptied himself of his divinity so that he was found in every way to be a man like we are, just a human being. So then we have to ask the question, what is it that made him so extraordinary? What is it that made him teach with authority and, and heal people and, and walk with such power and confidence and joy and love and display the, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about later in Galatians 5 when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. How, what enabled Jesus to do all those things? And the answer was that he had the Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of him. And because he had this, that spirit, he was empowered to do incredible things. And guess what, church? If we are filled with the same spirit that Jesus had, who he gave to us on, on the day of Pentecost, and when we come to know him, we are given the same spirit. That's what makes us alive in Christ. And, and the New Testament says that if we have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, then we should expect to live lives of power. And we've been using an analogy to talk about this with the hot air balloon. And you can imagine it this way, that the same essence of what filled Jesus to kind of live the life that he did is in us. And so we should expect to live and see evidence of Jesus in us, living through us in incredible ways as he does his work in us. It's not what we do, it's what he does. And so that's, that's kind of the concept that we've been going through in this series, and we've been doing it from the backdrop of the fruit of the Spirit. And so we've done several of the fruit, and today we're going to talk about goodness. And so let me, let me just ask you, as you think of what it means to be good, to be a person that's overflowing with good, wh- what, is, what does that look like for you? What, what, is, what would you expect to be true? What's it mean to be good? We talk about it a lot, right? I mean, I'm sure even this week you probably had a thought like, hey, that person's good. What do you mean by that? Okay, they're selfless. 
Anything else come to mind for you? They're patient? Good. No one else has any idea. (laughs) Good. You're a blank slate. We can fill this with good content this morning. (laughs) Okay. They do what's right. Okay. Okay, yeah. So there's a, not just right stuff, but right motivation. Good. They're peacekeeper. Okay. Maybe not stirring up trouble. That's what we think of when we think of good kids, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, yeah, they... They, uh, they want to believe the best of others rather than the worst of others. Okay, yeah, so they're, they're, they're kind in the way that they treat other people. So how do you get to be good? That's really the question, right? What's that? Practice, yeah. Yeah, living after somebody else's example. Good. Here, here's what I was thinking of this week. We're gonna, I'm going to try to answer both questions. Um, the second one's going to take a little bit longer than the first one. So the, the first one is, what does it mean to be good? When I think of, of goodness, I think of uh, to be overflowing with good. So it's not just a one-time, you know, drive-by good. But there's, there's, there's an essence of goodness. There's a pattern of, of, of goodness. And this is... So this this the way I was thinking about it this week, and this is kind of my definition. To be good, or to have goodness, is to do the right thing at the right time with the right heart, always. To do the right thing at the right time with the right heart, with the right motivation. Some of you even mentioned that. And to do it always. To have a, a, a record of of that kind of pattern and activity. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would love for this to be said of you? How many of you would just would, would love to, at the end of your week or even at the end of your life, for, for you to be known as a person that, could, that this very thing could be said of? They did the right thing at the right time with the right heart, and they did it consistently pretty good thing to be said, right? So how do you get it? What does it look like, and how do you actually attain this kind of goodness? Well, we're going to be looking at a story of somebody who was after that very thing. They wanted it. They, they were seeking after it and, and came to Jesus asking that exact question, how can I be good? And so um, oftentimes this is the story that's referred to as the rich young ruler, and uh, it's going to be in Ma- we're going to look at the one in Matthew 19. It's also found in Luke 18 and Mark 10, but we're going to be looking at Matthew's version of it. And we're going to start in verse 16. And if you're going to follow along with us in the Bibles that we have under the seats, then you can follow along on page 689. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Um, if you need one for your own use, it's our gift. So 689, in Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. This is what it says, just then a man came up to Jesus and he asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. 
If you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for, the camel, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So there are a few things that, that Jesus reveals here about what it means to be good, to be a person of goodness. And so we're going to talk about three of them. There might be others, but we're going to talk about three. And those three things that Jesus reveals about goodness is, one, he reveals our need to be good, that we have a need to be good. Secondly, he reveals our failure to be good. And third, he reveals our way to be good. So let's talk about the first one, our need to be good. All of us have a need to be good. And actually, um, if you look at the the man who encounters Jesus in this story, each of the the three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you put them together, what you find out about this man that that Jesus is talking to is that he is rich, he's young, and he's some kind of ruler. He's some kind of religious ruler or political. He holds some kind of political office. He's a man of great influence and wealth and, uh, and probably moral authority as well. In other words, he has absolutely everything you would think of as belonging to someone who is incredibly successful. So think of the, the most successful person that you possibly could imagine. And this guy ranks up there with whoever is in your mind right now. He's successful. He has it all together. It, and it's... It's not a stretch of the imagination to even think that uh, Jesus' disciples, if they weren't so concerned about jockeying for their own position at Jesus' feet and who was the greatest and who was going to you know, be closest to Jesus, if they weren't so concerned about that, they might have thought of this person who's coming and asking about eternal life. Hey, this guy would be a great addition to our team. I mean, this guy's got it all. We'd really love to have him. He's got so much to offer. He's rich. He's, he seems to be a person of goodness. He even seems to be pretty genuine because he's, he, he's realizing that there's something lacking in him. He's got it all. And yet we find out when Matthew starts this story that the man comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And when Jesus gives him the commands and says, here's what it looks like to start to live a life that experiences God's goodness coming and and being in you, then he says, well, I've kept all these things. What do I still lack? See, even when Jesus gives him 
the commandments that he believes in his heart that he's done that show the kind of goodness that we long for. I mean, if you were able to check the box on all the things that he says that he's checked the box on, people around you would consider you a genuinely good person. They'd want to be around you. If you, if you treated people the way that this man says, hey, I've, I've done this. And yet he still, even for all his goodness, he realizes that something is still missing. There's something that's out of place. There's something that's out of whack. Because his pursuit of goodness through his own good deeds is showing that somehow it's still leaving him feeling as though there's more to life. The truth is, uh, you can try to be a really good person. You can try to treat people as as you'd want them to treat you. You can try to live out all the commandments and try to do each one perfectly as it's written down every day to do your best in everything, and yet deep, deep down you know that despite all your efforts, you're still disappointed. There's still something missing. There's still something going on. There's still something that you're longing for. You still haven't found what you're looking for, as Bono says. I'm not going to sing it. I know Dave did a great job singing last week, but I'm no Bono. I'm no David Meadows either. So, <laughs> But you might even be here this morning for that very reason. You might be thinking to yourself, I'm visiting a gathering of the church because I want to know what one thing do I lack to be a good person? What can I add to my resume? What can I add to my life that's going to tip me over the edge? And the truth is that Jesus' answer to that question may actually shock you. It may even be offensive to you. It may leave you disappointed like this man because there's a deeper problem going on. But we have to understand the reason that you might be asking that question in the first place is because as a person who's made in the image of God, which you are and I am and every, every living person on this planet, the Bible says, has been made in the image of God. That means that we have something of his imprint on us, that we have something of his likeness in the way that we've been formed. We have something of his character inside of us. And because we have that, you were created to be good. You were created for it. You were created to always do the right thing at the right time with the right heart. Always. That's what you were intended for when God shaped you and formed you and had you in mind from the beginning of his creation. That's what he wanted for you. So you were created in the image of God and God does exactly that. He's the only one who always does what is good, right, and perfect. And because you're made in his image, there's this sense in your heart and your soul deep down that you should be like him in every way. And here's the truth. You know know that you've encountered the real Jesus. The real Jesus. Because when you do, he exposes your greatest needs. He can see through all of it and he sees down to a heart level and he he knows what you're up to and he knows what you need most and he knows what you're using to keep him at bay. When I was uh, coming to faith in in Jesus, which was probably for me a long three-year process at least of resisting and fighting and not wanting to accept what God had to offer through him 
And I, I, for, throughout my life, I've been trying different things to be the central thing of my life. And so I, I went from one thing to another going, okay, this is going to be the thing that gives me my sense of identity. This is going to be the thing that gives me my sense of worth and tells me who I am. And I went from kind of looking to my friends to do that for a season. And then when they failed and kind of left me because I was, I was making a false god out of them and they couldn't bear the weight of that, so they, they weren't going to come through on that. That failed me. So I went to athletics and sports. I thought, okay, I'm going to pour myself into this and that's going to be the thing. And then I blew my knee out and I couldn't play sports. So I'm looking around my, the landscape of my life. And I was in a relationship at that point. I thought, okay, this is going to be the thing that gives me my sense of self-worth and tells me who I am. And then ultimately she failed me. And then I, I went off to college and we parted ways. And I'm, again, I'm still looking for that thing that's going to complete the loop to make me whole, to make me who I think I should be. And the very last thing I tried, I remember I was, I was sensing that God wanted me to come to know he, who Jesus was. And one of the very last things, the last pillars to fall in my life before I accepted that was somebody near and dear to me was assaulted sexually. And um, it, here, here's where you're trying to like be good, right? This is is to do the right thing at the right time with the right heart. Well, I did the right thing at the right time. When, when she had experienced that, I thought, okay, I'm going to be the person to help her. I'm going to be the person to, to pick her up off the mat and to say that things are going to be okay, and I'm going to be the one to get her help and, and do all this stuff. I was doing the right thing at the right time, but I didn't have a right heart. Because what, why was I doing it? Basically, I had failed in the, in the endeavor of trying to make myself good to manage my own life, and I thought, well, maybe if I can manage someone else's life, then I'll be good. And so I poured myself into that endeavor, and ultimately that failed me too. And at the end of that process, I had to cry out to God because I had nothing left. See, maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you want to do the right thing, but you find that every time you try to do it, you don't do it at the right time because you, your heart holds you back. Or maybe you do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong reason. Or maybe you have the desire to be good, but you don't do it the way that you want to. Or when you do, it blows up in your face. You try and try and you try to be a good person, but it fails. We all have a need to be good, but we all fail at it. And Jesus actually exposes our failure to be good. He says there's more going on here than what we can see. Because we never feel good enough. The young man in the story is feeling the same kind of failure. That's the whole reason he comes to to Jesus in verse 16. He says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And he seems really sincere. But the way that he's asking Jesus the question shows that there's a failure there. And there's actually, I, I see two failures. One, there's a failure in his thinking. And two, there's a failure in his heart. There's a failure in his thinking and there's a failure in his heart. And those happen to be the very two things that we fail at when, it, when we're trying to be good. So there's a failure in his thinking. And this is the failure. And I, this, is, this is the way that I'll put it. This is his failure in his thinking. He has the assumption that his own goodness can earn God's favor. 
That if, I'm just, if I just add one thing to my resume, then, then I'll have the assurance that God is pleased with me, I'll be in relationship with Him, and everything will be good. I can rest and have peace from that point on. He's saying, if I could just do that one thing. And Jesus' reply is interesting. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. In other words, why are you trying to be him? There is one who is good. But why are you trying so hard? Only God is good. And you'll never get to be like him by trying your best. Jesus is saying, what you're really asking me when you ask that question is, how can I be like God? This is a stunning way to think about that question, right? Because when we think of the question of how can I be good, oftentimes what we're thinking is, how can I be better than the person next to me? And Jesus said, no, that's the wrong question. You'll never be good that way. The only way that you could possibly be good is by starting out by saying, how can I be like God? Which is an impossible question to answer, by the way. See, the reason that Jesus gives the man an impossible scenario to, to live out is because the man is asking for something that's impossible. He's asking, how can I be like God by trying my best to be good? And so Jesus answers him in a pretty shocking way. He says, okay, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be like God who always does what is good, right, and perfect, here's, here's how you do it. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. See, Jesus said, if you're, if you're going to be as good as God, then you can't just do the easy commandments. Let's start with the first one. Do you remember what the first commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And put, put no other gods before me. So how are you doing at the first one? Jesus says. See, if God is really first in your life, if you're not putting anything else above him, then everything else is secondary to him, which means that I can ask for anything and you would freely give it. And so he says, okay, you're rich. What about your wealth? Let's start there. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you're putting no other gods before him, you're putting nothing else before him. Nothing else is giving you your sense of identity and your sense of worth and well-being. Nothing else is more central to you than him. Then you should be fine giving everything away. So here we go. How do you feel about that? See, what Jesus is doing, he's, he's, he's unmasking the man by saying, no one really loves God with their whole heart. No one is really that good. See, the problem isn't that you need a little bit more goodness. The real problem is that you need to admit that you're not really good. And family, that's the first step for all of us. The first step of goodness is to admit that we're really not as good as we think we are, and we're really not as good as we claim to be. You can admit it. It's okay. That's step number one. And the reason that you can admit it is because deep down, you know your own heart. And no, no one knows your own heart more than you do except for God himself. And you know your own heart, and I know my own heart. It's a, it's a little bit like looking at something that seems perfect from the outside, then the closer you get to it, you realize how distorted it is. 
Like if you were to look at, the, at a sewing needle from a distance, you think it is gleaming and shiny and perfect. But the closer you get to it, the more you realize that that metal is pocked and, and misshapen in all kinds of ways. You just can't see it from the outside. But if you put it under a microscope, guess what happens? You know, what happened to this perfect thing? Well, it's no longer perfect. It wasn't to begin with. I, I think about that with my own heart. And it, like, we're going to have a lunch today, and people are going to share stories about what the people in Shadrach have said about me. Don't believe it for a second. <laughs> They see me twice a year for a week. And when I come there, I come prepared to, to share and to, to help train them and to lead them to make disciples. But they get a very, very small window into my life and in my heart. And so they come to con- some conclusions about the, the, the essence of my heart that, that hopefully as Jesus gets more of my heart, they're becoming true, but not all of them are. Those of you who are part of our congregation, you know me a little bit better because I share stories about myself that make myself kind of like I try to as much as possible to kick myself off the pedestal that other people put me on. Um, and, and so you get to hear uh, uh, some stories. But even that, even, even the, the window that you get, I'm shaping for you. So you see a little bit deeper, but not the whole story. I have a couple people that live with me. They see a much fuller story. They see me get impatient with my kids and, and, uh, and not do the things that I should. Mandy gets an even closer picture because then she gets to ask me questions about what's going on in my heart and what's revealed is that I have a lot of unbelief there. Unbelief and in, in, uh, in distrust in who God is. And, and God is, by his grace, working all those things out in me over time. He's shaping me to be like him. But it's a long, slow process. And the Spirit... Jesus himself knows me to an even greater degree. And he knows you as well. He knows your heart. So that's why the the Bible can say with certainty things like Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. You think, no one? I mean, I know I have a problem, but everyone has the same problem? Yeah, isn't that good news? So here's the thing. Every other philosophy in the world, every other way, and this is the pervasive way of thought in our culture today, thinks of the world that there are two kinds of people. There are those who are good over here, and there are those who are bad over here, and you try as much as possible to be one of these people over here that's good. Or at least if you're on the right side of the dividing line, you're okay. I mean, that's the way that most of... Most of us think. Most of the people around us think. And Jesus says, no. There are not two kinds of people in the world. There are only two kinds of ways to reject what I have to offer. You can either reject it through your badness over here by saying, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I want to live my life my own way, and so I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it, at the times when I want to do it, and I don't care if it's right or wrong. That is one way to reject Jesus, and it's often the way that we who try to be good look our noses down at. 
that we go, ah, oh, you bad people doing bad things. If you were so bad, if you were just good like me, everything would be fine. And Jesus says, no, there is no dividing line. There are only those people who are rejecting me through their bad works, and there are people that are rejecting my grace through their good works. And I would ask you the question this morning, are you one of those people that says, you come to Jesus and you go, look at the good things that I've done. And Jesus goes, you have no idea what you're doing right now. You are rejecting what I have to offer you. You're rejecting the grace that I have for you. And oftentimes we, we continue on with that and on with that and on with that, trying our best to be good people and, and, and realizing that as we do that, we're, we're taking everything that Jesus has on the plate, all the treasure that he has in heaven, and we're saying, no, thank you. I want to provide for myself right now. See, this, this man is good, relatively speaking, but here's the issue. He's placing his identity in his goodness. And because he's essentially asking Jesus to bless and give him a way to add to the way that he's rejecting him, Jesus sends him away sad. And we get no indication that he ever comes to his senses. That's the tragic thing about the story. Jesus does not force his grace on anyone. He allows us to to come to our senses to realize that, that we can never be good enough. See, but it's not just a failure in our thinking. There's a failure going on that's at a deeper level. There's a failure in our hearts. And there's a failure in his heart. Because here, the man comes to Jesus and he basically goes, teach me something that I don't know. Give me new information. What am I missing in my, in my theology, in my doctrine, in the way that I'm, I'm thinking about the world? And Jesus has none of it, right? He doesn't entertain that that line of questioning at all. In fact, he goes right to the heart. He pierces through all the man's smoke screens and the things that he's trying to to use to keep Jesus at bay. I love the way that Mark puts it in his telling of this story. In verse 21, he says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. It means Jesus wasn't just looking at his face, he was looking at his heart. And, he, it, and Jesus is saying, I know what I'm about to say is going to hurt you. I know it's going to grieve you and make you sad, but you have a deeper cancer that needs to be healed, and I love you to the point where I'm willing to point it out to you. So you have to get rid of all your money. Now here's the thing you need to know about this story, particularly if you're not familiar with this with God's story overall. There is no one else in the Bible other than this man who is ever asked to give up all their money. It's not a requirement in Christianity. It's not like, you know, to, to know who God is, uh, you have to go and sell everything to the poor. Because it's never mentioned to anybody else other than him. So we've got to ask the question, why him? Why this man? Now, I, I think it's because Jesus in seeing the man's heart, knew that there was a cancer that had to be cut out of him. And that that cancer required a drastic measure because the need was so great. So we can't toy with this at all. We need to completely remove it from your life. 
kind of the way that you would deal with alcoholism or gambling addiction. You, you don't just toy around with those things until they become a destruction in your life. You say, no, they need to go in order to start to heal. And that's what he's doing with this man. The problem that we have, though, is that we never really see the problem for what it is. We think we have a handle on our deepest issues when really those are just symptoms of even deeper things. See, and the, the deeper issue that this man was experiencing was that he, he, he wasn't just looking for a way to be good. He was using his goodness to cover over what he truly loved. What did the man truly love? Money. Why do you think? <laughs> yeah. What's so, what's so lovable about money? What's so central about it? Yeah, so, so with money comes influence. And, and it's no accident that, that the three gospel writers go, here comes a man who is rich, young, and rules. All those things are central to how he sees himself, which is why he has such a hard time giving them away. Because that's where his treasure is. It's what he's banking on. It's where he's getting his sense of self and his sense of worth. All those things are flowing from his money. See, money is just, it's the way that you control the world around you. And you may control it through money. You may control it through a number of other things. We often think that the the issue is money, either the lack of it or the fact that we have it and we're worried about it. The issue is not money. The issue is that you have a control problem. And I have it too, by the way. I want to control my world. I want to be the king and the boss of my universe. I want to say what goes and when it goes. I want to be able to say, this is what's right, and I know the right time to do it. See, we all have that issue. It's a much deeper cancer in our hearts than what we think it is. And Jesus comes in and says to the man, deep down in your heart, there is a power struggle that you are having with God over your life. And you're trying to appease God with your good deeds so that you can keep the thing that really gives you your sense of worth, peace, and joy. And until you get rid of that, you will never, ever treasure him. You'll never be good. See, with this man, it was money. With other people, it's different things. You remember the story of Abraham. What, what was it for him? What did God ask him to give up? His son. The son that he had longed for and treasured for, for 90 years. The son of promise that God said was coming, and he finally comes along. And, and what's Abraham going to be tempted to do throughout all his life? Is to make his son more important to him than the God who gave it to him. And so God, in an act of grace to Abraham, says, I want you to take your son and bring him to this mountain and sacrifice him for me. Let's see who's really first. Let's see who's more central to who Abraham is. And somehow God gives him the grace to be able to even entertain that prospect. And ultimately, God saves him from having to do it. See, what's Jesus doing here? He... He's saying, whatever is most central to your life, whatever is the thing that you're covering over with your good deeds, I want it. 
I want it. And I don't just want it for selfish reasons. I want it because ultimately, if I don't have it, it will be the thing that kills you. So let me ask this question to you, family. What is it that you're trying to guard from him? What is it that that you're trying to keep away from God? What is it that you, you want more than anything for him not to have? Is it your wealth? Is it your kids and their future? Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it your home? What is more central to you than he is? See, he, he knows because he's the one who made you and created the universe. He knows that you were made for him and him alone. And Jesus says, until you're willing, I may not ask for it, but until you're willing to give that thing to me, not only will it keep us apart, it will keep you from experiencing the life that you could have with me in this present age, but it will kill you from the inside. It will become a monster that you need to serve with your life over and over and over again. And you know, if you've ever made anything that can't sustain God's place in your life, if you've made that thing God, what does it require from you? It requires everything. If success is your thing, then you will sell out to success and you will work as hard as you can and you'll put in overtime and you'll, you'll, you'll do things that you thought you'd never do in business to gain success. Why are you doing it? It's because it is a God that's requiring more than what you thought it would require. It said it was going to promise you everything and then when you started to give in to that promise, you found out that the return was not as good as you thought. You invest and you invest and you invest for what? For diminishing value. Every other thing that is not Jesus Christ will do that to you if you let it. Everything will. And our hearts are prone to that because we we want to find treasure. We want to find something of value, something to pour our lives into. And if it's not Jesus, it will be something else. It will be another human or, or, or something else. And we'll find that it leaves us like it leaves this man, completely distraught. See, and no amount of goodness will save you from it. See, when Jesus comes and he says, put me first and be willing to part with anything for me, we often think that the problem is how much Jesus demands. How can he, how can he say stuff like that? How, how could he require that from me? See, but we're not realizing that he's doing it as an act of grace and mercy to us. Because he knows that anything that we withhold from him means that we're going to have to manage it. And we are a terrible manager of our lives. It was true of me when I was 21 and I was resisting it for three years. It's true of you too. It's true of me now. We're terrible managers. But here's the thing about God. He is a fantastic manager. Because he he both has the know-how of how to manage our lives and the ability to do it better than we can. So you might think, okay, well, what does all this have to do about goodness? Haven't we gotten off topic here? Well, I don't think so. Because it means that we need another way to be good. If our own effort can't do it, then we need another way, a way that makes us truly good so that goodness penetrates our hearts and cleanses us from the inside out. And there's only one way 
to get that kind of goodness. And Jesus gives us that way. He says there is a way, and he reveals the way to be good. See, when the sad thing about this man is that when, he, when Jesus comes to him, he says, you need to get rid of this thing in order to have treasure in heaven. The man walks away and doesn't take the offer. And Jesus predicts this when, he's, when he talks about how hard it is for the rich to experience the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when he says this in verse 25 and 26, he says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, Well, who then can be saved? I mean, who, like, if this guy doesn't qualify, how in the world are we going to do it? Who can, who, who can match up? Who can execute that kind of goodness that you're requiring from him? And Jesus looked at him and said, With man, this is impossible. In other words, don't, don't try to keep finding a person that does get it because you've found one, because with God all things are possible. I am the one who makes this possible. See, the reason the man went away sad was because he was using his good works to cover over his broken heart, and he wasn't willing to give up the charade. And here's the, it's not that the rich are disqualified, it's just that those who have more have more of a, of a mass to hide behind. That's all it is. The more that you have in this life, the more you think you're doing okay, and the bigger the mass that you use to keep Jesus at bay. That's what the real issue is. It could be finances, it could be a number of other things. But the more you have, Jesus says, the harder it's going to be. And it's going to be impossible to try to do it yourself, but with me it is possible. It is possible. It may not be possible for us to cover up our own goodness, or our own broken heart, with our good deeds, but it is possible for God to cover our broken heart with his good deeds. And that's exactly what happened. See, the rich man, and, and I think he's, he's a good example for us. I hope you're identifying with him this morning. He was not willing to give up his treasure, but the gospel says that God was willing to give up his treasure. That when God sent his one and only son into this world, that he sent and gave up the thing that was most precious to him. He gave us his treasure, the thing that was most precious to his heart. He went and sold him all to us so that he would come into this world. And when he did that for him, when we receive him, do you know what we become? We become good. Not by our own merits and efforts, but we become perfect through the one who lived a perfect life. See, what, here's what happens. We receive in Jesus. When we give up on our self-efforts to be good and we come to him, we receive in exchange his goodness. The New Testament says, he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, he who, who always did what is good, right, and perfect, who, who never had a day in his life where he disobeyed God, he always did what was right, when it was required, with a right heart, and he did it every single time. That person became sin. He was penalized for our broken hearts on the cross. He gave his perfect life in exchange for our imperfect life. And do you know what we receive as a result? The rest of the verse says, and we through him become the righteousness of God. We have a right standing with him. 
It's as if we never lived a life of brokenness and rebellion against God. It's as if we always did exactly what Jesus did because when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see you in your brokenness anymore. He sees Jesus in his perfection. Isn't that amazing news? And you get it all, all of that treasure, not because you did something good to sell everything and get it, but because God did something good when he gave his son and gave everything for you. And you simply receive it. See, if you try to be good your whole life and you will find that you will be disappointed. You'll find that the need is too great and you'll never get there. You'll never have peace. You'll never have rest. But if you accept this kind of goodness, guess what you get in return? You get the peace of God. You get the rest that comes with knowing that what he did was enough for you. You get the the forgiveness that, that cleanses you all the way through so that there is no more shame and distance that stands between you and God anymore. You can be completely naked with him in your own heart and know that he will accept you because of Jesus. You get his righteousness. You get his goodness. You get his standing before the Father. You get his inheritance. You become a son and a daughter of God. And he looks at you and he loves you and he smiles upon you. See, there's an implication to this. Because if this is new news to you, if you, if you thought maybe that Christianity was about you know, a group of people that were trying to be really good and do good things, and if you're good enough, then God accepts you and loves you, and this is news to you, You've never heard this before. This is called the gospel. This is what it means to to understand the good news of what Jesus came to do. And so if you've never received him, I pray that you do so today. I pray that you'd give your heart to him today to give up trying to be good and allow him to make you good. But there's a second implication because there are a bunch of us in the room that do know this news. This isn't new to us. This, in fact, we may have heard it so many times that it's become old news to us, which is, I think, a, a huge shame. <laughs> but there's a second implication because there are others of us who aren't seeing goodness in us. We look at the landscape of our life and we, we think, I, I'm, I'm not measuring up to this. I'm not living out what I know to be true of me. I, and, or I've forgotten what God has done. And I would call you not, maybe not to receive Jesus for the first time, but to remember. To remember what he's done. To remember how good Jesus has been to you. Maybe, maybe you've forgotten how much he treasures you and what you need to do is to remember again in a fresh way. I, I was needing that this week. I'm with you. I, I was uh, reading through some of these things and I was reading through my Bible. I was at a coffee shop uh, earlier this week in the morning, and uh, I came across Isaiah 49. And uh, for whatever reason, God used it to pierce my heart and remind me what Jesus had done in a fresh way. And I, I, told, I texted Mandy later on. I was like, I'm, weep, I'm like bawling my eyes out in a coffee shop. It's completely packed, you know? <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, somebody's going to ask me what's going on, and... I thought maybe that would be a good thing because then I get to point to Jesus and that would be, that maybe that's what he would want. 
Uh, but that didn't happen. But, but uh, <laughs> Psalm 49, verse 15 and 16 say this. And we have a lot of young mothers here. I, and I, this, it strikes me all the more. So if you're a young mom, or if you've been a mom, or even, you know, just thinking through this lens, this is going to be valuable. But can a mother forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion on the child she has born? I mean, think of how precious uh, that connection is between a mother and a child. You go, no, no way would a mom, how could she forget her own baby? How could she not have compassion? And the Lord says this, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Um, in the Old Testament, when, uh, when a priest went into the temple to represent the, the nation that, uh, and to, to make peace with God, to bring the, the relationship back together, the priest would write the names of those that he was going to represent on tablets and he would put them over his, hand, his heart and walk into the temple on their behalf. And Jesus is our great high priest. And what that means is when he went to the cross, he did so not just to have his hands pierced for the sins of the whole world. He went there with your name written on his hands that were pierced and shed blood for. You were on his mind. You were on his heart when he went there for you. Isn't that glorious? That God would think that much of you, that he would treasure you to such a degree that, he, that you were in his mind when he, he took on such incredible pain and sorrow and agony when he took on our sin. See, you're his treasure. And here's what happens to you when you realize how much he treasures you. The more you realize how much he treasures you, the more you want to experience that treasure. Isn't that true? If someone loves you and, and, and dotes on you and says, I accept you and love you and, and sends flowers to you, you want to be around that person more and more because the more you're around that person, the more you become someone else. You ever meet someone like at work and then all of a sudden they fall in love and you're like, you're a totally different person than you were last week. <laughs> when the world happened to you? You used to, you know, used to be grouchy and... and Think about yourself. And now you're in love with someone and you're, you've changed. You're pleasant. <laughs> now, I'm using a trivial example, but that's true when you come to know how much he treasures you. It changes you. See, suddenly you want to be generous because he's been generous to you. You realize you didn't do anything to earn it and God gave it anyway. And... and and the more you give away the treasure that he's given you, the more you find that you have it. You want to be a good person to do the right thing at the right time because every time you do, you see Jesus show up in your heart and your life and remind you of what he did for you again. You want to be kind because he's been kind to you. You want to be good. And, see, and that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus actually gives you the motivation, the heart, to do what is right. He doesn't just show you what to do and says, now go and do it even though you don't want to. No, he gives you a new heart. And one of the, uh, ha- the first time this happened to me, I remember 
Um, I lived in the city for about six years, and uh, I was going to a meeting one day in, uh, in Center City, and I was picking up uh, lunch to have later that afternoon, and I stopped by a Boston Market in West Philly. And uh, I had lived in the city long enough to know, um, kind of be immune to um, people on the street and begging and, and things. And uh, when I was going into the restaurant, I encountered a man on the way in. And he didn't say anything to me, and I didn't say anything to him. In fact, in every way, it was what you would expect. I mean, you kind of grow to expect people just to, to, to be around those establishments to, to get food. And uh, so it was an expectation of mine. And I, I walked by him with that same expectation. I'm standing in line. And as I'm standing in line, I literally feel the presence of God come and sit on my shoulders. Strange, I never experienced that before. I literally felt God like descend on me. And, and it, wasn't out of, it, it wasn't a sense of guilt or a sense of shame or you should have done this. It was a sense of you missed out on an opportunity to see me do something. You missed out on me. And so I, I, I just felt moved by the Spirit. I thought, God is speaking. He's saying something to me in this moment. So I went back outside and I said, excuse me. What would, I'm going to go in and get food. Would you like anything? Can I get anything for you? And he gave me a whole list of things <laughs> he, he, uh, he wanted. It's a grocery list. I thought, okay, like, if I didn't know the gospel, I would think, okay, you, like, you're, all you're doing is standing out here. Maybe you deserve, like, a, a muffin, you know, <laughs> and a drink. But when he, was, when he was giving me what he, he wanted, I, the only thing I could think to myself is, I didn't deserve anything before the Father, and he gave me everything. What right do I have to refuse this man who only wants this little bit? And so I said, okay, I'm going I'm to get you everything on your list. So I went inside and I got everything, and then I came back out. And even though I had to be at the meeting, I texted who I was going to meet with. I said, I need about 20 minutes. And I sat right there on the curb with him, and I ate breakfast with him. And uh, I just, I felt like it was uh, nothing that I was doing. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to be a good person today. And here's how I'm going to show my goodness. No, it was a good God showing up in my life and saying, I want to reveal who I am to you. I just got to sit and, and enjoy the morning with him. And, and, um, and man, I, I walked away, and I went to the meeting, and... and um, I, I walk in, and, and uh, the person I was meeting with goes, what happened to you? They're like, what do you mean? They're like, you have this, like, different thing going on this morning. You just seem different. Like, there's, a, there's, almost, like, there's almost a glow about you. I said, I think I met with God this morning. I think I literally had God come and, and show me what it meant to be good. I've had a number of those situations since. I don't think that's special in any way. In fact, I think if, if you've come to know him and you're, you're making Jesus your treasure, he will look for and, and show you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to connect with him by him being good through you. In fact, that's, that's actually one of the, the roles of the Spirit that's been given to you is to make more and more of him and to use you in other people's lives so that you would see him at work through you more and more. It's, and how, how do you grow to do that? 
practice, right? Practice. This is the way that I think about it. It's a little bit like having a bank account. And you only have so much in that bank account, but you realize that Jesus also has a bank account. And his bank account has way more room than yours ever could. There's way more in there. Um, But you have a choice every single day. You can either make deposits to your own bank account or you can make deposits and transfers to his. And so every day you have the opportunity to get up and go, okay, who am I going to deposit into today? And where is, this, where is my, the currency of my time and my life going to go today? And little by little, the more that you practice making those small, as small as they might be, I mean, they might be little tiny things that you go, this would never amount to anything. This would never be anything significant. But you make intentionally those transfers from your account to his and saying, Holy Spirit, make good on this deposit. Here's what you find out. You get all of his transfer in return into your heart. There will come a day when you'll have the opportunity to do something good and you won't just have your bank account to draw from. You'll have his. Won't that be a great day? I mean, have you experienced that kind of day before? I have a few times. And it's awesome, family. It is awesome. So that's my encouragement to you. Make deposits into his account. Here's the way that Jesus was good. And I want to encourage you with this because you think, how could we ever be, you know, how could we ever pattern ourselves and model ourselves after him? And, and this, is, this is what Acts 10 says. I was blown away when I read this. You know what has happened. He's talking about Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing what? Doing what? Doing good. And healing all those who were under the power of the devil. How did he do it, family? Did he do it because he was God? Because God was with him. See, Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. He chose not to draw from that account because he realized that God was going to put a greater deposit into his life. He realized that he could could draw from the power of the Spirit in his everyday life. And that, family, is the biggest encouragement. If you want to be someone who does good, first, give up on your goodness. Second, receive it in Jesus. And third, live by the power of the Spirit. And you will be good. You will do the right thing at the right time with the right heart. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we just come before you asking that uh, you'd bring this home in our hearts, that you would uh, illuminate Jesus to us and make him so incredibly valuable and, tr- and the treasure that we would sell everything for. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and maybe you'd reveal to us uh, opportunities Maybe opportunities that we've missed this past week that you want to just express that you forgive us for and cover us with your grace for. There may be present opportunities as we think about people in our lives that we could be a source of goodness for. And I pray that you put those people on our minds right now. There may be future opportunities and we might be thinking, I want to store up treasure in heaven for that day when, God, you will use me for good. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd give us the motivation to do that.
Lord, we love you. You alone are good. You alone are our source of goodness. And so we, uh, we ask that we would put our hope in nothing but you today. In Christ's name, amen.